Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's podcast on Asia, China, Indo-Pacific, and the United States, joined here by my co-host, Misha Oslin, a fellow at the Hoover Institution. Misha, say hi to everybody. Hi, introduce everybody. our guest. <laughs> John, it's good to see you. I, I see you're perched high above the strip of Las Vegas, broiling in the 110-degree heat. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm uh, here with the Claremont Institute this week, and um, it's a great story. They when they usually have their summer classes uh, for law students and journalists and government officials, interest group leaders, think tankers, and it's usually in Laguna Beach because of California's lockdown. They couldn't make any reservations six months ago, so where do they go? Till everywhere America goes, every place America wants to go, Las Vegas, which is wide open and busy. I turn around and look behind me down the strip, and you see all kinds, even though it's 110 degrees, there are people walking around with, you know, looks like three liter containers of beer. You can walk around with beer outdoors here, although it must evaporate and concentrate into even stronger beer. And, you know, I can see all the way down at the other end of the strip, I didn't realize this is Trump Tower. <laughs> Well, that, that's, that's, uh, that's, it's a good omen uh, for what we want to talk about, because we want to talk about Trump, Asia, Biden, Asia, what happened between Trump and Biden. And to do that, John, happily getting you away from the slot machines for 30 or 40 minutes or so, we have a fantastic guest. It is really a pleasure to welcome Tanner Greer to the podcast. Uh, for those of you who know Tanner, you know that he's very quickly becoming one of the most influential commentators and essayists. And I do mean the word essay as opposed to the, the short blog post, but essays uh, of, uh, of of the, the, the online world. Um, Tanner uh, is uh, not directly affiliated with any institution, um, but has been writing uh, particularly at his own blog called The Scholar's Stage, and that's scholars-stage.org. And I strongly recommend that everyone go and, and take a look at Scholar's Stage, but you can also find Tanner's writing in foreign affairs, in foreign policy, in palladium, uh, in, a, in a combination actually of both of new and, and I guess we might call old media. Um, and he, we're going to talk to Tanner about Asia, but uh, you should uh, know that he is writing extensively on America. I think he's writing a new book on the United States. We might chat about that for a second or two. Uh, very, very wide-ranging and and thoughtful uh, pieces that he's putting up. So Tanner, welcome to the Pacific Century. Well, thank you um, for the invite. What an introduction. I do not think I qualify as one of the most influential, <laughs> but I'm glad to hear people say kind words about me. So thank you for letting me on well, the show. We, we, well, we the compliments are over. <laughs> now exactly. we're getting down to business. <laughs> now it's the murder board. Uh, no, we, we, we try to be honest. And uh, look, when uh, folks, when you go to Scholar's Stage and, and you look at what Tanner's writing and you see who's responding to him, and including friends of ours such as Ross Duthat and, and others, uh, then you know that, uh, that you're, you're, hitting, um, you're hitting a critical zone in, uh, in American uh, the debate over what's going on in America and, quite frankly, what's going on in the world. And I think most people... Uh, who are familiar with you listening to our podcast, of course, know you from your work on, on Asia. They know you from your work on uh, China and Taiwan. Um, and, and really, uh, not 
the headline stuff. I mean, I think that's what's so important about what you're doing is, you, is you're getting behind the headlines. We often say that, but in this case, it's actually true um, based in part on your own, your own work out there, your own visits out there, but on extraordinarily copious reading. And before we get into the questions, I just, I have one question for you. The serious question, I have one question. I think it's every year you do a books that I read this year uh, post. Yes. Do you really read all those books? Because, you know, John and I are both professionals and I'll tell you, I feel like I'm reading Archie comics compared to what you're reading. I really do read all those books. It's true. Um, People often ask me, how do you read all these books? And I'm afraid I just don't have a good answer. Um, (laughs) Evelyn Wood. Is it, is it speed reading? I I just, I don't understand. It's only the books he started. He doesn't say how many he finished. Uh, Well, actually (laughs) I I put at the bottom another list of all the books that I uh, finished, but don't read all the way through because they're a waste of time. And that's, that's usually another 20 or 30 books down there. Um, that's where I want my book in, in the, the waste of time. I just want to make it into the waste of time <laughs> section. That's my goal. Well, what, um, what I'll say is I do make time every day, several hours to devote to reading. Um, but past that, these are serious books. What are you reading now? I mean, these are very serious, but we're not talking like 50 shades of gray. We're talking serious stuff. Some of which I've, I've picked up from you. I had never read Albion seed had meant to. Oh, and for this new book. project yeah. that I'm working on, on 18th century global history, I said, I got, I finally got to get it. I saw you had referred to it in one of your more popular posts that so I'm, I'm, I'm on page 600 now. So what are you reading now? Um, what I'm reading now, so I've actually been going through a lot of the Bush administration memoirs. So H.W. Uh, or W.? W. W. So this is things like uh, Doug Thief, Donald Rumsfeld, Condoleezza Rice, um, Dov Zakheim, all these folks. Um, John Yu. I haven't read his memoir yet. Mine's not. It's not really a memoir. <laughs> is it a tell-all, John? Not really. That's why nobody bought it. <laughs> it was actually mine was a discussion of the policies. <laughs> it was so boring. <laughs> well, I so, might have to get to it. Um, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm essentially doing it for the the book I'm writing, where I'm, I'm right. Tell us about my, that book, by the way. Uh, it, it's supposed to be a history of America from about 2001 to 2021. Fantastic. Um, so Fantastic. I, I kind of have to make like right now. I'm writing the chapters on the invasion of Iraq and on. Um, basically the response to 9-11. So I'm going through all the, all of the uh, memoirs to try and pull things out. Um, and, and what is the working title of the book? At the moment, the working title is Folly. Folly. Um, but That's we'll great. see if, it, if that changes or not, right? Titles often um, uh, switch about. Doesn't the Barbara Tuckman have a great book about Folly? The March, the March of Folly. Yeah, the March of Folly. That's right. Yeah. And and maybe now we're just tap dancing, right? Just a hundred years later, <laughs> tragedy and then farce. So yeah. hopefully we're going to avoid that with um, with Asia. Although I was just reading Robert Nisbet's The Present Age, and he has just a wonderful vignette on, or not a vignette, but his own take on the you know history repeats itself first time as tragedy and then as farce, talking about FDR and the Soviets after after Woodrow Wilson, and it immediately to me raised the questions of what how we approach the PRC, the same question of if it's tragedy, then farce, what's it the next time? Maybe tragedy again. Uh, And I want to come, if I can actually circle back to China, because you've done some very Mm -hmm. serious writing about, uh, in in essence, 
how little we know and how hard it is to know things. But I think given the debate in Washington and what's been going on lately, I'd like to start with Taiwan if I can. And I'd like to start um, with a piece that, that you put up. It's almost a year old. It's getting on near a year. It's called Why I Fear for Taiwan. And this is uh, on the blog, scholarsstage.org. And again, if you read the blog, what uh, Tanner often does is uh, work uh, older pieces or, or recent pieces that he's done in, let's say, foreign affairs or foreign policy, and then revisit them on the blog to expand them. You know, you as you know, you get more space and you're able to get reader input and the like that you don't get. So um, there's there's a lot uh, in here. It, it, it starts off sort of as a mea culpa on your previous assessments of Taiwan's ability to defend itself. But what I really want to start with the, the question, because, you know, people people like the, the sort of getcha, gotcha questions, is where you end up. And you say, quote, I cannot advocate sending American servicemen to die for the sake of a country that is not serious about defending itself, unquote. What has changed in Taiwan? And do you still, now that we're a year on, uh, do you stand by that? And and how should Americans really be thinking about Taiwan's ability or inability to defend itself? Well, that's an interesting question. And that was an interesting piece. It got a much bigger response than I thought, actually. I thought it would just be a little note on my blog. And sometimes I think if I had known how big of a response it was going to get, I might have written things a little bit differently. But... My take is that I would like to see sometime in the future a much closer Taiwan-U.S. relationship. I think there is moral justification for coming to Taiwan's defense. Um, however, I also understand that I don't know if by itself the message that we, we're going to be here, Taiwan, we're going to help you out is what the Taiwanese necessarily need to be hearing. Because there are significant problems um, they have had mobilizing their own society to prepare Taiwan for more dangerous contingencies. And I fear that it's too easy for there to be a sense of complacency if we just kind of come in without maybe preconditions, without us telling them, okay, we're just going to give you a clean slate, a clean bill, no matter what, blank check no matter what it is you do, uh, we, in my mind, I would be more comfortable giving them a stronger defense guarantee if they were willing to take certain reforms to do their, like basically to, to do their side of the work, right? To shoulder their right. part of the task. Um, because otherwise it's just going to be too hard of a sell domestically. It'll be too hard of a sell. And that's something I think a lot of national security folks, I've read about this many, many times, like right. a lot of national security folks in DC just don't have a lot of understanding about how normal Americans see these issues. And the latest polling suggests that the normal American is not willing to go to war for Taiwan. Um, Chicago council had a poll out a few months ago that had that result. And that might be able to change given circumstances. There definitely hasn't been a vigorous public um, education campaign to try and get Americans on board this idea. But I feel like if the Taiwanese have not taken some very visible steps to better secure their own country, it will be very difficult and perhaps impossible to mobilize America to defend them if it doesn't look like they're willing to, to take an extra share of costs and risks to defend themselves. 
Well, let me let me um, ask you with that. Then, I mean, this is a really damning piece um, when you talk about you talk about strategy, you talk about doctrine, you talk about uh, training uh, and and um, uh, procurement. Uh, and in essence, uh, the conclusion is that Taiwan is at risk of failing uh, across the board. The, the, the strategy is uh, an all-out war on the beaches, you know, a la World War II. Um, yet they're buying uh, large weaponry such as tanks uh, that will be largely useless there. I think even more stunning when you get into the piece, uh, based on extensive time you've spent in, uh, spent in Taiwan, including nine months in 2019, uh, is the lack of training. Uh, recruits that don't know what to do. They've never fired a weapon. Uh, they don't know, they don't know how to, to, uh, to work together. They don't know how to read a map. Is, is that, were you, was all of that uh, sort of some, an emotional response or is this, I mean, is this all really legit that you have a military that's really not being trained to fight? Um, so the Taiwanese military can be divided into different parts and the quality of the training varies. Most people I talk to, for example, um, have a lot of confidence in the air force. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. There's a lot less room for error when you're flying a plane. <laughs> for one thing, you kind of have to be good. Uh, a lot of the Taiwanese uh, fighter pilots are trained in Arizona, in the United States, uh, so like, for example, the air force, I don't have any complaints about them in terms of their, uh, training readiness, that sort of stuff where you see the worst problems is with the army and particularly with the draftees. Uh, the draftees are trained right now. New ones are coming in, uh, are, are trained for four months. They do a four month service. So it's not really trained for four months. They do a total four month service as draftees. And this simply is just not enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and then beyond that, it kind of seems like the Taiwanese have partially given up on, on seriously training these draftees. Um, there's a lot of reasons for this. One is the ti- small amount of time that they spend as draftees. There was a problem two years back where a draftee died um, because of training conditions were too tough. And this led to a massive civil society outbreak in Taiwan, ended up creating a new political party. The political party didn't go too far. It still exists, but it didn't, you know, win ton of seats or anything. But it created a lot of pressure on the military to not put draftees through too tough of a situation. Uh, And then there's other problems too, in that the army generals are from a kind of a past generation, very outmoded. Taiwan has been kind of cut off Unlike, say, almost every other United States ally, which has constant contact and cross-training with the United States, invited to events, right. the Taiwanese have been very isolated. So um, it might not even be clear to many of them just how poor their situation really is. Uh, with the people who serve longer term, the professionals, the situation is a bit better. Mm-hmm. It's not nearly as bad as it is with the draftees. Uh, at this point, there really is not a strong logic behind the draft system uh, because it's been degraded so much. The The professional army does a little bit better. Uh, I would even say quite a bit better, but they still they also have those problems. I think one of the times where I realized, oh, this is a real big problem, was when I met a I met a a artillery guy 
who I just met him in a random military um, like surplus store that I was just going to to see if there was any cool patches or whatever. It also sold mm-hmm. uh, like paintball guns for what it's worth. <laughs> and not of great use against the PLA. No, though. no. But, you know, Taiwan is not a society where you can uh, own guns. So, you know, that's right. how they get that out through airsoft and stuff like that. And they also <laughs> saw a lot of military surplus and, you know, cool knives and things like that. And so I met a guy who was there. We started talking and he told me how he was going to Thailand to get TCC mm-hmm. training. That's tactical combat casualty care training. Like the basic mm-hmm. stuff of like, here's what you do if somebody shoots you know, your buddy in the arm. How do you respond? And the fact that he had to leave the country to get this training was one of the first signs to me that, oh, like, there's a problem here. This needs, I need to investigate this a bit more. And as I started talking to veterans, to people who had gone through the, the bombing, the, the conscription system, mm-hmm. this very similar stories start coming out. And it's the stories of, basically failures to train seriously or for training that's not seen especially relevant to the potential contingencies that the Taiwanese might face. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it does. I mean, there's a lot more, again, uh, for people who, who want to dig into this and, um, and I recommend that they do. Um, but I think John wants to jump in on more. Yeah, on Taiwan. Let me, yeah, let me ask, uh, take a step back and ask a strategic question why we should care about Taiwan. You know, you make a point that, well, if they're not going to fight for themselves, then there's nothing we can do. Um, but why should we care so much about Taiwan? You could say uh, United States and China are, you know, two great powers struggling in the Pacific. We have to reach some kind of accommodation. Uh, the best thing is for us not to have a war with China at all but to recognize each other's power and to you know, reach an accommodation across a lot of issues. Uh, even if we were going to go to war, you know, it, it were today we would lose in Taiwan, perhaps, if China really wanted to take the casualties and the destruction to you know, unify with the island uh, and kill lots of civilians in Taiwan, ruin its economy and so on. Isn't the better thing if we recognize that would happen, that China would win in the end a con- of conflict there? better to avoid the war, husband our resources and fight for something really important? Well, uh, there's two things to point out. Uh, the, the first one has to do with your, your question is premised on the idea that China would win this war with Taiwan. And I don't think that's necessarily guaranteed. Uh, as I point out in this piece and some of the pieces I wrote before, there's certain strong advantages the Taiwanese and any force defending them kind of has by nature of geography and technology. Uh, in terms of geography, it's hard to do an amphibious invasion. Very hard. The Taiwanese Strait in particular is a difficult location. Uh, you can only go across it at certain times of the year, basically in a like, late spring and early um, fall tend to be the times when this works best. Otherwise, this, the waves are too big for most amphibious vehicles to, uh, to launch the U S army, the U S Marine Corps estimates that most of its amphibious assault vehicles can't go above a sea state four. It's like, uh, it's a level of, of waves and it's above that for most of the year in the Taiwanese Strait. You, 
the same problem that the United States military faces going against Taiwan, I mean, against China, which is that we must project across an ocean with very large, expensive equipment, is the same problem that the Chinese face. If they're going to invade Taiwan, they have to be able to take fairly large and expensive things like, say, amphibious assault ships and get them across the strait. This leaves them weak to weaponry um, of the asymmetric sort. And technology at this point in time kind of favors the defender. It favors the person on land and not at sea. It favors the person who can move around, shoot missiles, move somewhere else. And if you can have a force that is you know, high on these asymmetric tools, there's a good chance that you will be able to frustrate an invasion. Likewise, if you really can knock down um, an armed invasion, it's not like you get multiple chances at this stuff. If you're going to go across the ocean, you are looking at an invasion bigger than D-Day to take over this island. China can't just like pop those out one after another. And when they do do it, it wouldn't be a surprise because there would be very, very many, you know, logistic, military, and even economic and political indicators that this thing's coming. So there's some advantages that the Taiwanese might have. Their island is defensible if they, and perhaps we, are willing to pay the upfront costs of making it so. Now, why should America care about Taiwan in general? Uh, There's a few answers to this question. There are strategic answers. Uh, I think that Taiwan is the linchpin of the American alliance system in Asia. I don't think Japan, and I think the Japanese themselves are quite aware of this, is a viable American ally if the Chinese take Taiwan. This is one of the reasons why the Japanese have been very, very vocal in the last six months. Um, Unusually so, since about uh, December of last year, shortly after it became clear that Biden was indeed going to be president, they started saying these things that Taiwan must be, quote, the red line. for the American and Japanese alliance. And about once a month since then, they have had a senior defense official give a very similar statement. This is quite unusual. They're worried. Japanese are really worried. And the reason Japan might be worried about this, well, think about what Taiwan is. Taiwan is your biggest island in what they call the first island chain, the sort of group of islands that keeps Chinese forces blocked in to its near seas. Uh, if you, if Taiwan is controlled by China, they automatically have access to uh, deep seas where they can sneak their uh, nuclear submarines, other things of that sort. Uh, in Ian Easton's book on the potential Taiwan invasion scenarios, he quotes from a PLA manual that talks about how if they take Taiwan, they'll be able to impose an economic blockade and control the sea lanes of control to Japan and bring Japan into famine within a few months. So the PLA says it can do if they control it. Um, Most of the undersea cables that feed Japan's internet go right by Taiwan. Most of its oil, natural gas, and other shipping things go right by Taiwan. And then, of course, Taiwan is closer to Okinawa than either the mainland China or or the main islands of Japan are. And so if you have this question about uh, the Senkaku Islands, which is a dispute the Chinese and the Japanese have, uh, Taiwan is closer than anywhere else 
to these islands. And so from a like, pure geopolitics, geostrategic standpoint, if you lose Taiwan, it's very hard to keep the Japanese on board. And that's what, not without including you know, arguments about reputation cost or what have you. Now, that's the, the hard geopolitics argument. There are some other ones. A lot of people have talked recently about the semiconductor industry, which is a clear link, um, like a, a global node the entire economy depends on. There's only one company in the world that is able to produce the sort of semiconductors that companies like Apple uses. It's TSMC. It's in Taiwan. Uh, and then, frankly, I think there's a strong moral argument. That's that Taiwan is a country that has freedom. The people there have the ability to choose their own leaders. They have the ability to choose their own religion to say what they will. They have a distinctive way of life that is their own. This is unlike, say, the situation in Iraq, where we go in trying to change a country. This is instead a country that is already changed and wants to preserve the autonomy that it has. And in as much as we can help them preserve these freedoms without you know, nuclear war, <laughs> I think we probably have somewhat of a duty to do so. Um, the final thing I'll note is that you, the question you asked said, well, couldn't we just like draw a line, give them Taiwan and they'll be happy? And, and the answer is no, I don't think that will work either uh, because the Chinese demands, although they, they really do demand Taiwan, uh, their arguments with the United States are much larger, much bigger than Taiwan. Um, they're in many ways more ideological and more concerned about the shape of what the international order should be. And simply giving them Taiwan would not resolve these disputes. It would simply give them more strength and to pursue um, their quarrel with the United States on other ends. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not a big believer in the idea that we can easily um, come up with a, a balance of power. So I can talk more about why that is if you want. Um, sorry, that might have been a really long well, answer. Does it get to the... the no, it's... Um, it remind, I mean, if you look at um, histories about the start of the Cold War, it, it sounds... What you say sounds very similar to the arguments about defending West Berlin and why, uh, you know, strategically it didn't really make a lot of sense if the Russians really wanted to take West Berlin at a time when the Cold War world was still in flux and we didn't have... Kind of, uh, understanding is too strong a world, but you know where things settled into the system we had, and then we waited out the Soviets into collapsing. And it seems to me like you think that kind of uh, modus vivendi may not be possible with China, similar to the one the United States had with the Soviets, which was right. There were points where we almost did come to nuclear war with the Soviets, and there were proxy wars throughout the world with the Soviets. But the map in Western Europe pretty much stayed the same after 1945, and we kind of had this sort of settled system. But it sounds to me like you're saying that China might be more too, or might be too directly interested or aggressive in changing the order and pressing against the United States directly uh, than the Soviets were at the beginning of the Cold War, which means it's going to be much more dangerous and. Uh, uh, you know, uh, in, unstable world. Is that your? 
Well, yes and no. I mean, on the one hand, I don't actually think that captures what happened in the Cold War. Sure, Europe solidified, but go to the other side of the world, and it was a hot war for almost four years straight. China, Korea, Mm -hmm. Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Afghanistan, the whole thing was going crazy. Um, But I do think militarily it might be possible to have things solidify kind of where they are in Taiwan's sake. I, I believe it is possible for Taiwan to be become sufficient of a, have this sufficient deterrent power to stop an invasion, uh, at least in, you know, the next 15 years or so. Um, obviously we'd have to reassess as, as time goes on. But so I, I don't, I don't think it's impossible. And I, I think one of the reasons for that is a lot of the Chinese attempts to change the order they're they're quite explicit about this they don't actually think that military force is the proper way to go about doing this the one exception they always kind of list is taiwan um, they'll never make that promise about taiwan but they they the phrase they use is they say we are following the path of peaceful development and another phrase they use is that we are in a period of strategic opportunity and what these two phrases mean and they've both been in use for more or less the last 20 years is that the, the Chinese kind of believe that if this current moment of globalization and global economic integration, using military force to in, in like hot war situations is not the best way to shape the international order the way one wants it to be shaped. It will probably have counterproductive effects and, you know, there are evidence of this is pretty obvious. They say, look at America. Look how it worked out for them. So what they say, though, is that, like, we shouldn't. Like, as long as we're in this period of strategic opportunity, we are much better off trying to bind the world to us through economic means, through institutional means, through diplomatic means, And then once we are in that position, we will then be able to, if we need to coerce people, we won't have to use military force. We can use other methods because they'll be so dependent on our economy. They'll be so integrated with our system. We have the ability to use, you know, united front to corrupt, to coerce individuals. We'll have the ability to threaten market access, or we'll have the ability to open up our spigots of wealth or our markets. And so people will not want to do things that might upset their relationship with us. That's kind of been the Chinese approach. They still, Xi Jinping still regularly says, like, we're still in this period of strategic opportunity. And every time he says that, that that to me means, okay, we're still in this position where I want my, I want the party to think that we're not ready to fight a war where you don't need to do that. We should make our army strong, build up our forces, but we have more to gain through these other methods of influence and control. Uh, Taiwan is the, the sticking point, though. They thought this strategy would work for Taiwan itself. Like they, this, the version of the strategy was also to be used with Taiwan. They thought if we open up our markets to them, and they have, about 70% of the outbound investment from Taiwan goes to China. About 30% of Taiwanese exports go to China. The two economies are very intertwined. There was great hopes on the Chinese side that this would lead the Taiwanese people 
to gradually accommodate themselves to a future where they would be, you know, part of China. But the opposite has occurred. Um, increased contact with the mainland has actually, I think, radicalized opinion on the Taiwanese side. Um, and so now their rhetoric has shifted and they've started becoming a lot more militant. Does that mean they're going to declare war tomorrow? No, probably not. Like I said, we'd get a lot of indicators beforehand if, we, if they were. But it does mean that force is very much on the table in a way that it isn't with most other problems the party sees. Let me, if I can, Tanner, jump in there. This is Misha again. And um, uh, since we're on China, I think we should we should continue. And you spent a lot of time over the past five years or, or so writing uh, even longer about um, China in the sense of trying to understand the nature of the state, to understand the nature of politics, uh, and in no small part to understand the nature of, of Xi Jinping. Um, there's a lot of pieces, uh, again, on, on Scholar's stage or uh, that you've written outside that people should look at, a uh, three-part series on the world that China wants uh, the, from last year, 2020. Um, in 2016, you wrote a piece, uh, China does not want your rules-based order, uh, which flies, or, or, you know, back in 2016, it would have been, uh, I completely agreed with it, but it would have been a little bit more controversial uh, that, you know, we're not going to have this great convergence uh, by now that, that you know, you were ahead of uh, the, the curve on that. Um, you've, you've, you read, wrote a palladium about the theory of history that guides Xi Jinping. Um, one of my favorite pieces that you wrote was actually on the China education that most scholars and experts don't get, meaning how do you actually read these documents? How do you read them in Chinese? How do you understand them? Um, without having you just recapitulate what you, what you just said um, now to John's question so eloquently, maybe I ask you to, to, to think about for us, you know, what is it that Americans don't understand the most about China? What is it that we're least um, or, or what do we think we understand that we don't, what is it that, that we are the least educated in or familiar with? Um, and, and how important is it? I mean, there are some who, you know, uh, I'm not a political scientist, I'm a historian, but you know, if you would take some political science theory, it really doesn't matter what the nature of the Chinese state is. It's all billiard ball, billiard balls on a table bouncing into each other. Each state will act the same in terms of its own perceived interests. Um, so what are we getting wrong about China? What do we really need to know about China? Um, and, and why does it matter? Hmm. That's a good question. And the hard thing about this question is that it really depends on which Americans you're talking about. Right? If I go walk around the street, half of America doesn't know the difference between Thailand and Taiwan. And that itself is a problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and there's a difference between, I would say, just general politicos, national security people, China hands, each which have their own maybe uh, lacuna of knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps I have my two. I don't want to claim I'm perfect. But from my perspective, uh, I think a lot about how the Communist Party of China works, functions, and tries to achieve its goals. And one of the things I think a lot of Westerners do not understand about China, like first off, there's a methodological problem. Um, they, they don't understand 
that in many ways, the Communist Party of China is incredibly transparent about what its intentions are and what it wants to accomplish in the world. And the reason why it is transparent is because the leaders of the Communist Party of China, people like Xi Jinping, are in a very difficult position. They have this gigantic, tens of millions of people large machine. Uh, the, the Chinese government uh, has almost the same number of employees as the population of South Korea. <laughs> Just to give a, <laughs> uh, an example of this. And there's maybe at least like 500,000 core cadres. Um, and, and so you want to try to get them all to go in the same direction. Right? You have this country that's about the size of a continent and all these different moving parts. How do you get them to all go the same way? And that's what slogans are for. That's what communist rhetoric is all about. And it's really easy to read this rhetoric and come away not knowing anything. Um, a lot of it's really boring. A lot of it seems to make no sense. Um, I recently had a podcast episode with uh, Peter Mattis, the former intelligence mm -hmm. analyst. Peter's a, good, a great guy, a good friend. Yeah, so he, he was just on my, my own personal podcast. I released it this week, and he gave a good example mm -hmm. of this. He says if every single major Chinese speech has said these goals for what China should be, China should be strong, beautiful, harmonious, and there's a list of like 16 adjectives, and they say the same 16 adjectives every single time. <laughs> and you read these. It and, comes from Confucius, you know. <laughs> well, well, you read these and you're like, what? They're just copying Confucius down. <laughs> what, is it, what does it mean when China says it must be strong? What if it must be this? And yeah. there's a way to do it. You can actually go back in the history and you can kind of identify, okay, here's when this, this, this word first came into use. Here's how it was. Here's what it meant then. Here's what it was defined as then. Here's how it's been used all these different times in the, you know, 30, 40 years since. And it takes a lot of work. I won't say I'm especially good at it, though I've done it a few times. I think there's other people like Dan Tobin, Adish Roland, mm -hmm. Mattis himself, who are really, really excellent at this and who I take a lot of my thinking from. Um, but if you go through this process and you figure out what these words mean, what these phrases mean, where they come from, you get a very clear idea of what goals China actually has. And this kind of ties in back to what I was saying earlier in terms of why I don't think there's a sustainable accommodation. Because actually the goals the Chinese have are very ambitious. They're not just let's preserve the party rule. Let's just make sure there's another communist general secretary in power 10 years down the line. They have right. active goals they want to accomplish in the world. And until you can identify what these are, you're going to have a hard time making effective policy. And a lot of the actions that they take, things you don't like, you know, hacking here, throwing Uyghurs in detention camps there, destroying company here. It just seems like disconnected annoyances maybe. And you need this high level view um, in order to make sense of what the party is really doing.
Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, know, I encourage folks to listen to this podcast ahead of Peter, where he talks quite a bit more about this. And I agree with him. What's the name of the podcast? Yeah, Scholar Stage. Scholar same Stage my, Podcast. Same as my website. So it's, it's, only, right. it's pretty new. It's only got three episodes, but um, folks can listen to you know, him talk a little more about that. And I agree. I think that's kind of the central stopping point is that a lot of people, even experienced China hands, they just want to like, I don't know, use big data or use these obtuse international relations theories where everything is, you know, degraded down into a numbers box. Right. Try and say, well, this is what will happen. Whereas I think maybe the right way to do it is, well, why don't we actually like listen to them and see what they say they want to do? And perhaps that might, might be important. So do you think then that the, um, what we might call the Kissinger consensus or the Nixon-Carter consensus has actually been a consensus for every president since 1972, uh, is truly uh, dead? Is it, it, was it put to bed by Donald Trump or by a combination of Xi Jinping and Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton was in there too? And um, Joe Biden uh, for the first six months certainly seems to be holding much of a hard line, not on everything, but on, on many things. Uh, are, are we, I mean, what I've tried to argue is that, you know, the first era of USPRC relations, a 40 year period stretching from, you know, 1979, let's say to uh, roughly 2017 is over. And we're in, we're in a new one. If Kissinger says we're in the foothills of a cold war, you know, we're in the foothills of a new era. We don't know uh, what it's going to turn out to be. I don't think we know what we what we should do, but I don't think we're um, we're united at home on thinking about that. And you can see different public pronunciations by different groups on on either side or all different sides of this. Um, but how do you assess this then? And, and you've been somewhat unsparing, and I think rightfully so on on sloppy thinking and and easy uh, easy assessments or assertions and analogies some of which you were just talking about so um, is the is the 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 Nixon Kissinger Carter and onward consensus over um, and if so then then where are we where do we stand in US China relations I think it's over I think okay. it's over I, I think Hopefully we'll get more out of you than just that, but yeah. Well, so, I mean, yeah. Yeah, I don't know how much more there is to say that like in terms of like, why is it over? Uh, Trump played a part. Would it have happened without Trump? I think so. Mm-hmm. You know, you use this phrase mm-hmm. new era. That's a phrase that Xi Jinping loves to use himself. Right. And so that's what he calls this, this period of time. We're in a new era. Right. And, you know, to have a stable China consensus, you needed both parties to be playing certain roles and the Chinese mm-hmm. have just made it incredible. They, they weren't ever really playing the role we wanted them to, but Correct. they have now decided to be very public about that fact. Right. And mm-hmm. so even countries that didn't have a Trump say countries in Europe, I think have come to recognize that this is a different game, but that might've been why? a tactical mistake on their part. But. Well, let me, you're right. The, the, I mean, to make it as simplistic as possible, the no longer hide and bide strategy, but why, why? Okay. So the question is, did the U S simply not know that they were not playing the role that we had assigned to them or did we know and not care? Or did we know and assume that we were going to change them? I mean, as a historian, to me, this is the stage I think is, is critical. Yeah. We have to figure out a new policy, but if we don't understand both what happened and why we did what we did, then tragedy will become farce and tragedy again. You know, I don't have 
a complete answer. Um, to an extent, you, you have to ask the people involved, although, right. you know, hindsight has a way of, of, of changing the way people think to an extent. <laughs> but I think uh, really a large part of it was that we just believed they would change. We believe that if we open up our markets to them, if we opened up, if we try to make them, as the Bush administration called them, a responsible stakeholder, they would play along. Mm -hmm. And we believed it for too long. Like that was that that's the real error. It's not that like actually, because my, my position is this wasn't a bad strategy. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't right. inherently a terrible strategy to say we can kind of change the regime or change the way that people think or get them habituated to the set of norms that we like, give them a stake in the order as it is, and they'll, they'll do it. It isn't inherently bad strategy. And one of the reasons why I say that is because the Chinese themselves reacted very, very aggressively to it internally. They were very worried. They read these same speeches that, you know, when Bill Clinton says things like, oh, Internet censorship is like trying to nail jello to a wall. When George W. Bush says speeches like, oh, you know, if we give them economic freedom, they'll have real freedom. That They'll taste freedom and they'll grow it out. The, the Chinese read those speeches. They knew what we were trying to do. And they reacted. Uh, and, and I think but then there are... This reaction really started strongest i would probably say around 2008 is when you see a, a mm-hmm. very strong reaction get kicked in and so the real question isn't like was this a terrible idea I, I don't think it was a terrible idea i think it was worth a shot in 2000 it was a mistake in retrospect but it was understandable less sympathetic to me is basically united states from 2006 onwards refusing to recognize that our gambit had failed and so by the time we get to 2016, the fact that you still have, or, you know, so I, you mentioned the, the article I wrote, China doesn't want your rules-based order. I believe I wrote that in either 2016 or late 2015 after the mm-hmm. Shangri-La dialogue where John McCain gives a speech to this dialogue where he says, China has a choice. China can choose between, you know, being a good boy or being bad. And they have, they're on this choice. And the point of that article was just to point out they had made their choice. They had made their choice right. probably a decade before. And we kept saying, you go, they have this choice. They have this choice. They have this choice because we wanted it to be true. Uh, oh, the other side too, is that of course we were also really occupied with other problems at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the strategic costs of the decision to go into Iraq. Frankly, if right. we hadn't gone into Iraq, we would probably have had, a much better handle on Chinese affairs. Which is something Asianists are very sensitized to. And I understand why my friends who are not Asianists who worked on Middle East issues or Europe issues are not as, uh, you know, when, when I'll raise that there, it's not that they're not sympathetic, but it's, it's a different mindset for us. It was always about Asia, let's say. Um, And for them and rightfully for a period, there were, there were other things that had to be done. What's, what's also interesting, I think um, in, so the deeper question of course, is why did we think we were going to change them? Why did we really believe we were going to change them? What does that say about uh, American 
character in American uh, strategic thinking or lack thereof. Uh, and then there's a there's another element that gets thrown in, which is the what I would argue is retrospective revisionism on the part of uh, certain scholars. Ian Alistair Johnson's one who said, no, 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 we never said we were going to try to change China. That was never the goal. Um, we were always just very clear that what we wanted was trade access. Uh, and And so even now, history is being rewritten to try in some way to be exculpatory. Well, let's, let's talk about that second I think one. You brought up. Like the, 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 the folks who are defending engagement, right. Which is what we call this policy more or less mm-hmm. for, um, they, they don't actually claim that we didn't try to change them. We say we didn't try to change their regime, we, but we did want to change their behavior. That was more or less their, their, their take. We did want to change their behavior. We didn't want to change their regime. Um, and number one, I just think this is false. Like it's too much on the record to prove otherwise. Mm-hmm. And uh, even if you had some very sophisticated people in the state department who were implementing these policies with the idea that we're not really trying to change their behavior, or, I mean, their, their regime, just their behavior, this clearly wasn't being communicated to the principals. Right. Um, so at some level right. you, you're failing either way, if that is what really was going on. But second, they didn't succeed in changing the behavior either. And that's the really remarkable thing. But the phrase in which um, responsible stakeholder was introduced to the world was given in, I believe, late 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, by then the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State under Condoleezza Rice. And he goes out and he lists, you can go and read the speech. It's quite interesting. He lists about like 12 requirements for things that China needs to do in order to be considered responsible. It was a very patronizing speech, I thought. But the other thing about this, this list of requirements of things China do to must be you know, considered good is that only one of the 12 things is ever actually done. Uh, the rest of them, China continues doing or gets worse at in the subsequent years. And so even by their own metrics of success, now this is what they said we want to do. We don't wait. By that speech, he says straight out, I'm not going to try and change China's internal system, though we do think in the future it will democratize. He says that in the speech. He does think in the future this will happen, but we're not going to, we're not going to push for that. But here's the things you got, you guys need to do. And the only one where the Chinese like basically listen is they like one of the complaints in the aughts was that the Chinese were, um, being too tough when they negotiated for oil deals and they were locking out other countries out of oil deals and countries like Sudan and stuff. It's like an issue. No one even remembers now because they stopped doing it. I'm pretty sure. Um, but everything else in the list, it's the same problems that still exist today. And so the real problem with that approach though, is I don't think you really could totally change the behavior without fundamentally changing certain aspects of the regime. If one of the things you want them to do is be more transparent about their military, and that's one of the lists of things there, um, or not do cyber attacks, these things are built into what the Chinese would call their development model, their security and development path. And unless they're going to change their path, which the Chinese themselves say is tantamount to asking us to change our system, then the behavior wasn't going to change. There was very little analysis of, of what internal factors might have been producing this, this behavior. And 
Yeah. Well, I think, yeah. And I think, as you said, it, it was worth a gamble. Um, it did, it did make sense as we understood post cold war development, what some called the Washington consensus. Um, obviously you're referring to, to Bob Zellick and, you know, many of us, what well, we know Bob and have been able to talk with him, uh, about this and, and the, the ideas of, of how these different pieces would have fit together to create change. What I think has become more evident to, to most uh, is, is that we now, we take the ideology more seriously. I mean, when you talk about regime, you talk about a regime that's underpinned by ideology. And in the post-Cold War era, we weren't very serious about ideology. We thought, you know, whether it was the end of history or whatever, uh, that, uh, and then, and combine that with what we saw happening in a, uh, a post-Mao era under Deng Xiaoping uh, and uh, Jiang Zemin of, of opening up, uh, of creating more sphere for civil society, of creating more sphere for, uh, for government separate from the party, while, while never, of course, surrendering the overall control of the party. Um, a, lot of it, a lot of it did make sense. And I think you're right that by the time we get much later, I think into the, you know, the mid 20 teens, then the the unwillingness to, you know, really completely accept uh, that it wasn't going where where we anticipated is is much more problematic. And, you know, you now have uh, people running um, Asia policy in the Biden administration um, who were there in the in the mid 2010s, who are the first now to say this, the era of, you know, competition and, and adversarial relations is the dominant one. So, you know, if history is, you know, well, history happens or, or events happen, and then our, you know, our assessments and understanding are always a lagging factor. And, and um, you know, the, the history remains to be written of, of all of this, and certainly uh, the attempts to try to get it right um, were worth it and made sense. Now we're in a different, as you said, a new era. Xi Jinping will, will appreciate that. We're in the new era of trying to figure out what we need to do in terms of of what might be considered more narrow, narrowly tailored national interests as opposed to what we thought were, were clearly global interests. Um, we could continue on this. I know that that John John had to actually jump off for a prior engagement, and he would be ringing the bell saying, we, we've taken up enough of Tanner's time, and well, we need to be running uh, from this. But I think we've you know been getting to a lot of really interesting comments at the end uh, and, and thoughts at the end here. Um, there's a lot more to talk about, but again, um, we've been talking with Tanner Greer, uh, who writes scholarsstage.org, scholar, scholars-stage.org, has a podcast, Scholars Stage. Uh, you can catch him in uh, mainline uh, publications, foreign affairs, foreign policy, and the like. Uh, but do check out the blog, uh, check out the book when it comes out. And Tanner, thanks so much for joining us today on the Pacific Century. Thank you for having me. So for John Yu, I'm Misha Oslin, and we will see you once again soon on the Pacific Century. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.